Thank you for downloading the Engineering Commons podcast. In this episode, we welcome back founding co-host Chris Gamble to join us in a conversation about interdisciplinary skills. Along the way, we stumble into discussions about beef brisket, small business, and amateur brewmasters. Please join us for this 100th episode of the Engineering Commons. The Engineering Commons explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of field or industry. Join Adam, Brian, Carmen, and Jeff as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is Episode 100, Interdisciplinary Skills, January 21st, 2016. So, Carmen, how's your knowledge of heat transfer? Uh, I know stuff flows from hot to cold, but uh, that's about as far as it goes. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've picked up bits and pieces doing, you know, uh, integrated FET regulators. You got to have at least a rudimentary knowledge of it, but wouldn't call myself an expert. Right. And, and why would that be? I mean, I would think an electrical engineer would only need to know how the electrons flow. Well, I mean, you know, resistance, power is I squared R. You lose that as heat. You got to know a little bit about heat. <laughs> wow. So you need to know a little bit about uh, thermal transfer. Enough to get by, yeah. At least to be able to converse in it. Or, or as we knew it in the day, is heat and mass transfer or heat and meat. Heat and meat? I like that. Yeah. Did you just grill all day? <laughs> was that your homework? Yeah, that, that was it. Ooh, that sounds like a great class. <laughs> I did see a class where, I can't remember which university it was, but they, were, uh, they had their engineering students working on developing the perfect I guess, oven for making beef brisket? Uh, I could tell you it was not my engineering class, but that does sound like fun. <laughs> I know it's usually the, uh, you guys usually introduce people, but when you say brisket, I got to cut in. Come on, man. <laughs> you're not going to keep me out of the conversation at this point. No, you're not really a guest. You're, you're a former host. <laughs> well, come on. I'm kind of a guest. You're, you're like the mighty ohm of our show. You're going you're, you're gonna to be like, you're going to say brisket and expect me not to come in. What, what, you don't know what university this was? Because I'll go, I'll go sign up for that school in a second. So. <laughs> Well, I will, I will have Institute? to. Uh, Maybe no. It, it was it was like a, a fairly well known engineering university. I know. I know Cornell has a bunch of beer classes and stuff like that. But yeah, yeah. I almost had a beverage minor at RIT. <laughs> <laughs> I, Standard with every engineering degree, right? Yeah, yeah. No, this was an actual beverage minor. I was going. No, no, for. yeah. No, just tell your parents that. It's fine. Mm-hmm, it's fine, mm-hmm, Carmen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could pull. I could pull up the curriculum. I got proof. Mm-hmm. I just, you know, was debating between taking like the science of fermentation and distillation or like, you know, analog circuit design. And I needed one of those to graduate and one would have been optional. You chose wrong, man. Uh, apparently wrong. I did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> What's another semester? Yeah, exactly. Or two it's or three. 15 grand. <laughs> <laughs> plus dorms, plus yada yada. Yep. So the, the university was not a uh, slacker university. It was Harvard. Wow. Harvard doing barbecue. Does yeah. Harvard produce anybody noteworthy? <laughs> Not on the barbecue circuit, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> well, uh, apparently a, uh, a Harvard uh, engineering professor was eating barbecue one day when he realized that science could be applied to this tradition to improve it in respectful ways. And uh, so he got his class working on a semester-long project to build a smoker that can produce perfect brisket every time. 
Can I buy it for just three easy payments of nineteen ninety nine? I need a test. I need to test this out first. <laughs> Harvard should have opened a small barbecue shop on Harvard Square. Harvard. Right. So uh, at the very end of the article I'm looking at from ABC News, it says the hard work paid off, though. According to Parker, which is the professor, William Sonoma is thinking about starting a product line uh, based on their developments. Oh, nice. So that'll be like 10 easy payments of $20 <laughs> instead of just three. <laughs> That's right. I'd rather just the infomercial sell it to me. Right. So they needed, uh, for the Harvard students, they needed a little background not only in uh, engineering, thermal transfer, they probably it required a little bit in food science, right? Food science, business, uh, fabrication. I mean, yeah, any project, you yeah. get tons and tons of, you know, you when you're on a small team, it's you're in charge of everything. So that's that's the best part about projects. Yeah. It's, it seems to be important that engineers uh, are not only uh, have an area of deep focus that they're, they're sort of their expert at, but they all also have some breadth that they can uh, move across various engineering disciplines. I don't know if that's is – that, is that a new thing? I mean, we've always had, needed a certain amount of depth, but is this, is this cross-discipline uh, uh, requirement, is that expanding, you think? I think so. Aren't we going to talk about it then for the whole show? Is that that's the topic? <laughs> wait, wait, and you'll find out. <laughs> the on the engineering comments. <laughs> All right. Well, you've you've heard his voice <laughs> to help us with this discussion of interdisciplinary skills and to help us celebrate our one hundredth episode. Noisemaker. <sighs> we've invited someone <laughs> well. <laughs> Well, we've invited someone well-known to longtime listeners of the Engineering Commons podcast. It's our pleasure to welcome founding co-host, entrepreneur, educator, and electrical engineer, Chris Gamble, back to the Engineering Commons. Chris, how are you doing? I'm good, Jeff. Thank you for having me back. Carmen, Adam, good to talk to all you guys and oh, yeah. Yeah, be back in my old, the old haunt here, man. This is your great. Stomping grounds. I, I feel like a special guest here. too, not to steal your spotlight because of my crazy work schedule before the holidays. I missed a few recordings. Oh, oh, yeah. you had a so couple skips there. Yeah, it's my yeah. triumphant return as well to podcasting. <laughs> yeah, holidays make it tough, man. Uh, this was more customer issues, but sure, we'll go holidays. No, no, yeah, no, just say holidays. <laughs> Holiday customers, you know, like they needed to get all the stuff to Santa's sleigh. Exactly. Yeah, I was wrapping Whatever. presents till late, yeah. late at night. <laughs> right. App note presents and uh, <laughs> something solution, along those lines. Yeah. Solution stocking stuffers. We and, call it solutioneering. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. Right. So o- over the holidays, Chris. Mm-hmm. Did you get any Christmas ale this year? I, uh, you know, I should have seen this qu- uh, question coming. Uh, you've asked me, I think, every other time I've been back on the show. And yes, <laughs> yep. I did. Uh, Cleveland's Great Lakes uh, Christmas ale. You know, the thing that's crazy, though, is that it's the distribution now is just it's, it's everywhere. everywhere. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anywhere in the Midwest, for sure. All the way, all the way, I think, to the East Coast now. I get it so down I think here in Raleigh. Yeah. It's pretty hard to not find these days. Wow. And, it, and they usually release it like the day after halloween so it's kind of disappointing <laughs> right. uh, it didn't come till i think right around thanksgiving here maybe a little later oh, actually. okay well maybe yeah but around here it was yeah it was thanksgiving or halloween rather it, and so does this particular brew still float your boat as much as it did three or four years ago you know i've been trying to cut back in general but yes it's still delicious um okay as we were talking about before the show you know there's just so many opening these days talk about interdisciplinary right. skills like engineers and brewmasters and everybody kind of just Going gangbusters with opening these these microbreweries everywhere. So oh yeah, 
Good times for everything except the waistline. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know how it is up in Cleveland. Probably a little different because it's cold up there. But here in Raleigh, a lot of the breweries and bottle shops have run clubs where you'll meet up one day a week and run three to uh-huh. six miles a, and then beer drink mile beer. type thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't. I can't do that. No. It's it's a good time. You know, I, I actually feel good then about the beer I drink afterwards when I can get a tent. Yeah, cool. That's good. Mm-hmm. So yeah, uh, still doing the yeah. They're still going on around here. It's still good stuff. <laughs> Excellent. Well, so, well. So uh, just to catch up with uh, our, our discussion from past episodes, mm-hmm. uh, you were on uh, a couple times ago, and we talked about contextual electronics. How are right. things with contextual electronics? And well, I should mention as well, contextual electronics is the reason ultimately that I ended up stepping away from the show. Uh, that's what I had planned to start with, and it's been mm-hmm. it's been going great. I mean, I'm really glad you know. Uh, everybody else jumped on Brian and Adam and Carmen, uh, but yeah, that's that is the reason that I I uh, I left the engineering commons, right. and um, it's been going good. It's been going good. We've been doing our second year of course stuff. Mm-hmm. We the first year was all about like a fixed, very fixed schedule, and what we've been doing in the past year is kind of releasing videos as we go along. So now it's more like an apprenticeship, uh, kind of rebranded as an apprenticeship. But the idea mm-hmm. is we're working on a lot of different projects at once, as you do. Um, in a product firm and mm-hmm. it's basically you're following along you're building stuff um, you know you people can follow along after the fact as well but but the idea is it's like you're an intern or apprentice in a company that's building a device and right. I say company because I actually have two I'm not sure when the last time I was on here but I now have two um, embedded uh, instructors as well so I brought on two people and they're helping me with the embedded portion we're going over ARM processors, Cortex-M0 stuff, how to actually program in a professional way and, you know, actually building a full product. Uh, we don't have any mechanical guys yet, but, you know, that might be in the future. And, mm-hmm. you know, just making a thing. That's mm-hmm. that's kind of the best way to learn. Oh, fantastic. So, fantastic. Yeah. And so has the response to this sort of ongoing subscription series been been pretty good? Yeah, it's been great. It's been great. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's tough because, so like as an example, uh, it's a lot of stuff, right? Just like any product design, people are listening out there who have or haven't been in the product field, you know, like you're making a thing. There's just a lot of stuff to do. And so as a result, over last year, we made over 300 videos, kind of just stepping through all these different, uh, you know, we made eight different projects and multiple revisions and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And there's just a lot of things to go over. And people can pick and choose, but it's, um, yeah, it's it's just kind of tough to keep up with so i think that the the people that are most successful are the ones that know which ones they they pick which ones they want to work on and uh and we have different you know we have different topics and different you know uh modules that we're building but it's all in the uh with an end goal of a little telepresence robot um using a old cell phone or old smartphone Mm -hmm. really right so yeah and in in doing these videos one question i've got for you because i've run into it is that uh i'm getting ready to start another semester teaching a mechatronics course. And last year in the same course, I got started, didn't finish, but got started in trying to put together some tutorials on how to use KiCad to lay out a small uh, board. Mm -hmm. And so everything I did last year, I went back to relook at it. And now that we've come out with a new stable release of KiCad, things are slightly different. Not everything is in the same place. So, so how much time do you have to, or how much attention do you have to pay to, going back and updating videos because something in the software or something in the process has changed? Uh, well, 
the way we've been getting around that is we actually so uh, one of the embedded instructors put together this thing called Vagrant, and basically mm-hmm. what it does is it installs. It's this scripting program that basically installs a virtual machine for you. It does all of the the different installs. So both for the embedded side of things and for the KiCad side of things, you basically mm-hmm. run a command and it just installs everything into a virtual box. Okay. And that's kind of the idea of like having that frozen in time because you're right, people are going to follow along, but they have to do so with a with a standardized version. Right. And um, so that's kind of the the whole like updating of software kind of thing. That's kind of taken care of by freezing the software in time, but that's totally an issue. Uh, I'm actually re-recording all of the KiCad videos for the public right now. And, okay. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that's that's always an, always an issue. So. Oh, well, then hurry up. I really need that for this semester, okay? I can send you the links. They're, they're, <laughs> they exist, but they don't, uh, they're not public yet, so. Oh, okay. Yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> for you, Jeff. For you, I'll give it to you. Hey, I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. How's the Mechatronics course going? Um, it's going to be a challenge. Uh, we've got, uh, we, we keep going up the first year I taught it. This is my fourth year. Mm-hmm. First year we had 24 students and then we had 38 students. And then last year we had 40 students and this year we have 50 students. Yeah. And, um, while I enjoyed I, the popularity, I'm pleased at the popularity of the course that more people are taking it just since it's a big project course, uh, the the administration of it, making yeah. sure that everybody participates and that everybody gets along with their group and their team members and that all the parts that are ordered for the final project actually get delivered to them in time and that we don't, you know, upset the university purchasing office too much with all these requests for, you know, $10 boards. It just takes a little more work. So I'm, I'm just getting started. Actually, tomorrow morning will be my, my, first, uh, my first lecture awesome. in the course, but uh, I, I'm excited about it. Well, and I think that that rise in popularity too. I mean, that kind of stuff where it's that's where people are hungry for this stuff because you know, like we we all know, right? We all went through engineering education. We know about that super focused, you know, theoretical side of things. Like that is not a problem. Like schools have that down pat, and they're great at that stuff. It's that in between squishy. Oh well, which one is this? Which which department does this fit, fall under? You know, like who should really be teaching this kind of thing? Almost right. That's what. Right. That's what students want, though, because that's where you actually build a robot or you build a you build and like thinking about someone. Someone asked me if contextual electronics was building a if if we'd ever consider building an app that controls a Bluetooth device that we designed ourselves. And mm-hmm. I tried to explain to this person I'm like, well, there are a ton of steps in there. Like there, there's some programs that do that where like they'll write an app for an existing device, and and that's that's a good start. But if you want to start from uh, building an app for a small device that you design yourself, that means you need you need electrical design. You may need case design for like if you want to enclose it in something. You need sure. firmware design. Then you need some kind of, uh, you know, you need all the software stack to go all the way up the chain. Then you need application side software on the computer to actually, you know, or sorry, on the device. You need to be doing like Android program or something like that. And then you probably need some kind of web interface. So you're like HTML5 compliant. Like the amount of, <laughs> like, like there is just, that is... That's a lifetime. You know what I mean? Like if you were an expert in all those things, that would take a lifetime. Right. And so that's, but that's where the interesting stuff is. People say, I want to build a thing that talks to a thing. Right. They don't care how it gets done. And so it's kind of, how do you, how do you cross all of these different chasms of, chas, chasms, not chasms, sorry. All these chasms of, uh, of, and all of these silos of information. It's, it's super right. tough, you know? Right. Well, I, and I think that what you're doing uh, with contextual electronics and what I tried to do in this mechatronics course is 
is ignite the passion. I can't make anybody an expert in 16 weeks in in any in any of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you hope to. Uh, in, in in my case, the 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 end project is some sort of autonomous robot or vehicle that drives around and does some task, and that the students get excited about that. And hopefully, that excitement carries them on to go. Hey, that was that was fun. What can I do next? I, I I have a little bit of knowledge that gives me a foothold. Where can I go with this? Right, and exactly, and and another thing there too is is you know it's a thing to point at and say this is where I started because mm-hmm. then when you're trying to get an internship, you can also say, well, I built this robot. I mean, yes, there was <laughs> a they, there may have been some coursework involved, and there may have been you know I was following some directions, but there's still a lot of things to talk about, a lot of interesting challenges that were met, and yeah. and hopefully you know, bested. And, you know, that's, that's the best way to showcase your skills, I think. And then eventually, then you just keep building that. I mean, I think last time I talked about portfolios are really big, I think. And, you know, you start with a guided project, then the next one's a little less guided, then a little less guided, and then you do it on your own. And then, and then five or six projects in, you have your own thing. And right. that shows that you're, you know what you're talking about. Yeah. It, and it's, it's funny. I, I occasionally get asked to write recommendation letters. And so I'll ask the students to afford me their uh, their resume so that I can I have some basis to understand you know where they're you know what grad school they're going to why they're going that sort of thing and virtually without fail they list whatever their project was in this mechatronics course you know that gets listed as a as a highlight of their academic career so that I'm pleased about that yeah man that's got to feel good that's got to give the the warm fuzzies huh oh sure yeah sure well so you we talked to you a couple of times ago when you were on about um, contextual electronics because it had recently started up and the last time you were on we talked about uh, your work with supply frame and, and uh, chiefly a, a new site what was then a new site called parts io are you still working on that I am yeah I am uh, we're still revising and improving all of the search algorithm that kind of stuff and mm-hmm. yeah man that's been a challenge uh, I think I talked about that last time too of just like <laughs> uh, boy web stuff Still not easy. Um, <laughs> I know it's ubiquitous, but man, that is trying to figure out what people want, and especially when it's free, it's just like holy crap! Like, <laughs> just I do not understand people. So, I, so is that the hard part? Not not the writing the code once you know what is to be done, but figuring out what it is people want. Well, the I don't uh, I don't write the code. I'm a I'm a product manager. So no, I I understand that, but I mean oh. it, the dif- the overall difficulty is it in trying to determine what will motivate people to use your site more than it is the actual technical details of of coding it up. Uh well, I you know my focus is on the getting people to use it, but I think I think there uh, there are very significant challenges in both. I think that it, there <laughs> there is no there is no code library you can pull uh, motivation, you know, people's motivation from. That's what I'll say about that. How about that? <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. You're always starting from scratch, basically, from a lot for a lot of these sites. And it's just like, that's, and that's what it's hard for me because I don't uh, necessarily understand what people want. And that's, and that's, that's the hard part for a lot of projects. You think about even just for product design, mm-hmm. making something that people want and will use regularly. It's like, that is... I mean, everybody, everybody knows that that's a hard thing to do. You know, you're making, making the next big gadget or making the next, next thing that people want. Hell, CES just happened, right? How yeah. many, there's 10,000 different showcase people there, maybe, you know, 50 to a hundred get written about. <laughs> that means right. there's a lot more that like, they just didn't get it, you know? Of the 50 to the hundred that got written about, maybe five are successful. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And it's just like, yeah. So <laughs> people. <laughs> they're the worst continue to be a mystery yeah 
it weren't for the damn customers, it'd be a great, great time. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so additionally, in your prior visit, we talked a little bit about your participation in some monthly meetups. Do you, do you still go to those? Oh yeah. I uh, still do those. I do uh, one in Cleveland. I uh, just had it the other day. Actually, it was really big this time for some reason. Some NASA people started showing up, which is awesome. NASA uh, people? Yeah. Uh, uh, Glenn, the Glenn Space Center is in Cle- Cleveland. So. Sure. What, and what, what kind of projects did they bring? Uh, you know, a lot of the embedded type stuff, um, wide range. Cool. And then uh, I also do a meetup out in San Francisco whenever I'm out there. So that's uh, that's part of Supply Frame and doing, you know, just kind of getting, that's actually a little more formal, having speakers and, uh, you know, we film some of those as well. So that's nice. Cool. Yeah, it's great. I mean, if people, and I think I talked about it last time, but, you know, if people don't have this in their area, if they do have it in their area, they should definitely attend it. If they don't have it in their area, they should try and start one because, you know, again, I know coming from an engineering background, uh, I was not super keen on people at first. <laughs> right. But yeah, man, that's how you that's how you find new work. That's how you find new projects. That's how you find people to work on stuff with on weekends. It's uh and, you know, there's usually beer, too, so that helps. <laughs> Ooh, excellent. Excellent. Well, so I suppose we should roll into the uh, the topic for this episode, which is interdisciplinary skills. Yeah. Are there any particular interdisciplinary skills you're trying to develop right now? Me, personally? Uh, sure. Yeah, you know, I so I think I've talked about in the past, I got a, I got a milling machine about three years ago. Yeah. And it kind of sat dormant, I'm going to be honest. Um, <laughs> I remember you stopped talking about it on the Amp Hour. Yeah. And it was just because, you know, it's noisy, it's messy, and I didn't know what, what I was building. And and that's the thing. I didn't have I didn't have a project in mind. And that's, you know, like I talk about project-based education a lot, but whenever you're getting started in a new thing, it's usually best to have like a thing that you want to build. And if if you asked about what I wanted to build, I, I didn't really even know. I knew I wanted mm-hmm. to do machining, but I didn't have a, a specific project. Right. And you mean, um, you're not Elon Musk. You can just learn it all from reading a textbook. Yeah, he doesn't do that either. <laughs> I mean, that's what I've read. I've never yeah. met the man, so I couldn't tell you if it's true. And don't believe everything you read, Carmen. But it was on the internet. People don't lie. <laughs> All right, right. right. <laughs> um, yeah, and so uh, my friend Marty, who's here in town, he's been using, he's been designing RepRap variants for a long okay. time, and sure. he's got a business doing that kind of thing now. And I was like, hey, Marty, what do you think about getting a mill for your uh, your three D printing business? And I'm like, and I could get a 3D printer from you. And so we did a little swaparoo, and now I have a 3D printer, um, a Wilson 2 3D printer. It's a RepRap variant. Okay. And uh, it was like a $500 kit, and it's fantastic. It's uh, really solidly built and super great construction. And and so now I'm 3D printing crap. <laughs> right. And, and, and so what uh, what new skills have you had to learn along the way? Uh, for this kind of stuff, I mean, just like building up a machine that the, mm-hmm. so I was very specifically, I knew, I knew I wanted to get a 3d printer. I've always wanted one, sure. but I didn't, um, I, once I got the milling machine, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to stick with this for a while. And, and then, so I decided I was going to get rid of the mill and I knew I was going to sell it to Marty and stuff like that. And, um, and so I could have gone with a kit or, uh, off the shelf one. There's a lot of really good off the shelf ones. The printer bot, simple, the metal stuff, like those are really nice. And then the Taz, mm-hmm. there's really, there's just a lot of really high quality ones out there now. And, but I wanted to be able to modify, I wanted to understand the system and, uh, 
when usually when you buy something like you're say, oh, well, I'm going to modify this later, but you know, it's, it's kind of that choice again between a tool and a project. And I, sure. I actually actively chose a project this time, even though it was a kit. I mean, I get, I, I get that. Um, I wanted to understand how it was all put together, how it works, the different pieces, especially because these pieces are, they were all 3d printed themselves. Like all of the, all of the interconnect pieces. Mm. So now I can go b- build another one, build an extended one, you know, that kind of thing. Cool. So. Cool. And, and do you have a project in mind for the 3d printer? I mean, yeah, you know, that, use- yeah, there's a bunch of stuff around the house. Um, and then enclosure, it, the main reason is enclosure design and fixturing. That is the main reason okay. that I wanted to get it. So, um, for, you know, uh, the robot project I'm working on, especially, um, there was a lot of stuff there. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Well, so, and so I had earlier introduced perhaps a little early, this notion of, you know, is, is this need for interdisciplinary skills expanding? Are we seeing a change, uh, just due to the, you know, rapid expansion of, of engineering science or has this always been around and, and we're just paying attention to it this evening? Well, let's 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 go down the line. Let's all state uh, what we work on, and then on a regular basis, and then something that's outside of that. And I'm sure it's pretty easy to come up with some examples. So, who's first? Adam, you first. Well, if we're we're looking professionally, um, actually, I'm really a very maybe don't fit well in this, but I'm a specialist, and and tend to stay pretty. Well, it depends on perspective. Depends who you talk to. I, I do tend to stay pretty specific in my traffic engineering, um, but compared to other traffic engineers, I, I do a little bit of everything. But I think I'm kind of the the exception to the rule around my office, where uh, most other people have to do a little bit of everything. Um, you know, and then they go to one of those specialists when they when they need somebody to fill in um, a gap. Okay, Carmen, what about you? Uh, well, as we mentioned in the opening, I got to know a little bit about heat transfer. Um, and I have to know a little bit of mechanical stuff when it comes to packaging and IC. Um, you know, going from a QFN package or anything with uh, bond wires to something in a, a BGA or a CSP package, you got to understand how it mounts to the board and, you know, what kind of stresses you can put on it from soldering. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I got, I got to branch out a little into those areas, but I'm pretty much a, a specialist when it comes to analog design. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, I think in both your cases, I would, I mean, I would consider even small stuff. I mean, I just think that even just considering other other fields of study or well, other non traditional, just super siloed stuff, that that actually fits it as well. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. But is this is this changing? And, and I think that maybe it is because we keep we keep scaling back on this on the engineering staff, right? There's yep. there's always there seems exactly. to be fewer and fewer people to do more and more, and so we hand off the the things that are very specialized. Uh, that is, if you need a a servo motor, you don't go you typically don't go pick the motor and then go pick the software and then go pick the you know programming framework. You know, you go pick a specialist, some company or firm or, or consultant that knows servo motors, and they pick that out for you. Mm-hmm. Or if you're doing, uh, I, I know there's been some discussion on this podcast and others about how in uh, electronic design, you know, the chip manufacturers are saying, well, instead of you picking out the little bits of chips, basically, we're going to give you the chip and the, you know, the, uh, the interface software, and you just use our system, we'll take care of all the details, you just worry about the big picture. Yep. And I think that 
as a result, for most of the engineers, who uh, the majority of whom will not be doing the design work down these very narrow niche uh, segments, they're, they're becoming more and more responsible for a wider and wider variety of things. And so I, I think that that's leading us without any scientific proof. I, you know, I just think that we are probably having to be more varied in our, in our skills. I, yeah, I totally, I think we are entering, if not already in the middle of the age of the solos and, you know, just the rapidly shrinking, uh, engineering department. Um, mm-hmm. I guess that's a good question for Adam and Carmen because you guys say you're both specialized. I mean, what is the relative size of your companies? Uh, my particular office, there's no, 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 full company, full company. Yeah, it's over a thousand, eleven, twelve hundred. We'll say I'm not exactly okay. sure. Okay, so not a small company. No, not not a small, but not twenty thousand people or anything like that. And my my design center here in Raleigh's. 60, 70 in that range. Yeah, but even having design center in the name, you know, that kind of, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not common these, you know what I mean? Like, true, true. But I, I would say that me me and Adam particularly are uh, the poor, poor uh, host to talk about this topic because I, we are somewhat specialized. If you uh, listen to any of the Spark Gap podcast episodes, you know, it seems like they have to look, you know, they're embedded engineers, quote unquote, but they also have to know about sampling theory and, you know, a little bit of analog design to interface with all the ADCs and DACs that they're putting on these micros nowadays. Mm-hmm. Yep. So it, it seems like they are much more breadth, uh, you know, much more breadth of knowledge that I don't have. Because I, I couldn't tell you the difference between an M0 and M3, uh, you know, whatever, ARM processor. I know nothing of those. You could if you focused on it day-to-day, though. You well, know what I mean? Like, yeah, <laughs> but I mean, I'm not, that's not necessarily saying, you know, they don't focus on analog design every day, but they could tell you a little bit about you know, interfacing an op amp to an A to D or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I, I could maybe tell you a little bit, but it's, it's not my bread and butter. Yeah. But that's, that's sort of an exponential curve too, right? You, you can, you can read up on Wikipedia in the, in an hour and at least know a few key words. Mm-hmm. And if, if you go online and study pretty hard for a day or two, you can at least have a, you know, a conversational knowledge of the issues. But if you want to become an expert in any of these areas, now we're usually talking, you know, months or years of working in that field uh, to sometimes that's just to become, you know, passably good. Sometimes it takes a decade of work to really become an expert in that field. Yeah. So, you know, each little bit you want to advance, you you have to you have to uh, contribute more and more of your time slash money to to get there. Yeah, I mean, that. That's basically the definition of a PhD, right? I mean, like that is the the most narrowly focused thing you can do, pretty much. Yes, and uh, and it takes a long time, as Jeff, you may know. Yes, I, I'm uh, aware of that. Yes, yeah, yeah, <laughs> Doctor Jeff. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it does take uh, a while. Yeah, and uh, and I think that I mean I have a, a a specific. We all have different views on it, of course, uh, but I think that I think really there's really a bifurcation, right? Because you know, so like in, so obviously I, I focus on the chip industry and stuff like that, but, but Carmen knows as well, like there's just so much consolidation oh, because yeah, you're either the biggest and you're supplying all the little guys or you're, there's no one in the middle anymore. There's, you know, there's maybe 20 huge companies and then a super long tail of, of small and smaller companies. Yeah. I'm focusing right. on niche, like we provide chips for this. No, not even the chip level. Oh, I mean, like, oh, just in general. Like, like, if you look at all electronics companies, right? There's the there's the twenty huge ones. Maybe, yeah, maybe there's a hundred total with the extra niche ones. But then there's just there's just they're all getting 
they're all consolidating at the top Everybody's and then the rest is everybody. it falls off and then all of the OEMs and everything like that. There's even big OEMs, right? Oh so yeah, definitely. I interface so there's with them OEM, a lot. Yeah. So there's the big OEMs that are out there that are actually making, you know, devices for Apple and stuff like, like the PCHs of the world. Um, and they command a lot of attention and stuff like that. But then there's the guys that are just the consultants in their basement or the two person shops. And, and there's, there's a lot more of them. And I think that in the future, there will even be more than there are currently. And those places require this stuff. But, but this runs contrary to the trend I see, at least in the overall numbers, that the number of small businesses in the United States, at least, is declining. Uh, like small businesses, that's probably including retail or no? That's including all small businesses. Yeah, I wouldn't. I mean, that's like, <laughs> yeah, but that's, that's like... It, the big so, piece of that was retail and Amazon. Y- yes. Yeah, yeah. So, so, yeah. so first it was Walmart and then it was Amazon driving yeah. out the mom and pop shops, in, right. at least in retail. Yeah, I, so I wouldn't use that as a proxy for this discussion personally. Yeah. Uh, yeah. For those just tuning in, this is the microeconomics podcast, not the macroeconomics <laughs> podcast. <laughs> but, you, you know, I, I'm thinking it's somewhat uh, discipline specific because in, you know, I, I work for a, a state government agency – um, so it's a little different, but I don't, the, uh, the contractors that we interact with, the consultants, they keep getting gobbled up into bigger and bigger companies to the point that we deal with a handful of really big companies and that's it. Um, uh, mm. because all the little ones have gotten bought out in the last five to 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, maybe it's local, um, this kind of the little pocket that I'm working in, but you know, at least in my industry, it appears that there's more of a consolidation towards bigger rather than lots and lots of one, two, three person shops opening up. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I can't say I know anything about your industry. Sorry. <laughs> well, that's all right. That's all right. Um, so the, one of the other factors too, I think is even in large companies though, the employers are less willing to train employees. One of the reasons just because employment periods seem to be so short, everybody's changing a, changing jobs every two or three or four years, or that's more frequent than it used to be. And so employers are less willing to do the training. They want to hire the, uh, the engineer that already has the skills. They want to bring them in and immediately put them to work. Uh, but that, uh, that being less willing to train employees means the, the employees are going to have to be more willing to train themselves for all these cross uh, disciplinary skills. Right. Right. And I think that it's, um, you know, in, in terms of employees training themselves too, I think that, I mean, personally, at least I saw it as a, as a path to get ahead as well, because when I, you know, when I looked at the situation I was in, I, I granted, again, this is a personal situation, but um, sure. the, the value I was able to provide was rapidly shrinking because um, a lot of the stuff that I would have done in prior years was being gobbled up by the chip companies doing it. Sorry. Um, that's okay. I mean, it, I mean, it's, it made sense economically for sure. Oh, but yeah. then like also looking at, you know, what makes me more marketable as an engineer. So I started getting into 3D design and, and, you know, designing just even just prototyping types, that, that kind of stuff, because I wanted to help control the flow of the design process. Um, you know, I wanted to help make the decisions and in doing so, you can't just be like, well, I, cu- I couldn't be like, well, let's talk about the analog piece. It's like, we don't care about that until six months down the line after we figured out all of the mechanical and the, and the, you know, the interface and stuff like that. Like it's, there are isolated problems, of course, but if, if, if I wanted to 
have a say in at that point in the design process, um, it would be a lot more helpful if I was kind of guiding guiding the way bef- before that, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I know <laughs> what you're saying. So like I was design, I was helping design with, I was like helping discover the backplane connector, right? That was one thing that I helped helped with. Um, and it was like, because of voltage spacings that I needed to do when I, that I wanted when I was looking at the stuff six months in, in the future, um, I knew we needed a certain type of, of um, connector. And I didn't need to be in on that process, but if I was handed it, uh, that becomes in- incrementally more difficult if we, if I didn't have any say in it in the beginning where it's like, well, I can't do anything with this or I have to mm-hmm. lower my specs or I can't, you know, like, or we have to do a respin on the whole concept at, at, at the point where we actually start that design. So it, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a tough, you know, there, there's a reason that I got into it and it was, it was basically around helping make the decisions up front. Yeah. Product definition is a huge area. Um, I, I sort of got into a similar thing at work with helping define uh, the pinouts of new chips because I was tired of getting a pinout and the chip's already been taped out and you got to make an eval board for it and then you can't do an optimal layout, you know, because yep. this pin's routed all the way across the damn, damn chip from this other pin and they're a differential signal and how the hell did that happen? Yeah, exactly. And, and, and so in that, you probably have to start doing customer facing type stuff, seeing what customers are asking for, see what the market's doing. Yeah. It's not necessarily even, you know, just engineering specific stuff, even crossing into business and, and talking to customers and stuff like that. That is a cross-disciplinary skill because what I think about is the guy who has worked for 30 years for Intel working on PLLs <laughs> and is really good at it. But if he got fired tomorrow and he couldn't find a job in PLLs, what does he do? That's true. Yeah. That is a yeah. little more specialized than I am, I guess, being in apps. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. And even apps, it would have a lot of uh, cross-disciplinary stuff. So um, it, do you think we're being driven there that at some point the, you know, with AI and the advanced technology, you know, 20 years out that almost all of the design functions and the, you know, actually doing the layout will be uh, fairly automated. And so really engineers will be in the role of being sort of uh, guides to society and to people about how to use technology as opposed to actually implementing the technology? Uh, no, I don't. Well, I mean, I think that kind of, that day will probably eventually come, but I think that it probably won't be in 20 years from now. No, but I think not. that, um, I think that people who can not only understand and do the engineering work, but also can help explain it, you know, just the communication aspects, right? That was one of the reasons we started this podcast in the first place of just, being able to talk about all these things and explain concepts to other people and, and make those connections like that, that's always going to be worthwhile. I think, you know, that's going to be, that's like any, any good engineer is able to communicate and, and into the future, it becomes more and more important because, because there's more integration pieces and because of all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So no, I don't, I don't think AI is going to take over though, Jeff. (laughs) Well, right. So one, so one of my abilities as a uh, as an engineer is to always look for the weak link. Right? I'm always the guy that's looking at. Okay, yes, all that's good, but here's your problem. There's still we haven't we haven't taken care of that. And uh, mm-hmm. so I think there's a need for engineers that can find the uh, you know the defect. Uh, but but after a while, nobody wants to talk to them. Right? <laughs> it's like <laughs> you're you know. Um, uh, we we need a team player, Jeff. You know, be a little more upbeat. You know, and uh, I'm finding the I'm finding the mistake. So, uh, just looking out into into the future, I I worry about these things. 
I mean, I th- well, and I think about looking out in the future as well, and I think about my my own career, right? And mm-hmm. I think about that. Um, well, I mean, I, I had this, right? So I was when I left school, I was going to, I went to Samsung, and I was in a chip fab, and I was learning how to become a process engineer for dry etch. Mm-hmm. And what ultimately <laughs> I was not specific. Ha- <laughs> yeah, right. And and I looked around, and I looked at my my boss, who I I loved. He was awesome. But he was 10 years my senior and he was doing the same work as me and he was not happy. Uh, you know, we were working super long hours and not that that's a problem either, but it was just like we were doing the same things over and over and over again. And so I thought about it. I'm like, well, what happens if we get sick of this and we want to quit? And then I mm-hmm. thought, well, I can go work about six other places in the world. I can <laughs> go to, I can go to Korea. I can go to China. I can go to Portland. I can go to upstate New York or I can go to Germany. And it's like, uh, that's not cool. You know what I mean? Like, like that. It's it is you super had your specific knowledge. Cleveland. <laughs> well, the I, holy I, grail I, right there. Yeah, right. <laughs> Cha-ching. Uh, <laughs> and then eventually LeBron came back. All right. Yeah, if I cared about basketball, um, I thought he was a golfer. <laughs> yeah. An actor. He's an actor. Oh, okay. Um, so. That scared me, and uh, and for some people, it's like, well, that's they what they want to do, so they're willing to take those risks. But, but like honestly, like that is because that was such a specific, super narrow set of knowledge that mm-hmm. it, it just you don't have any opportunities elsewhere. And even since, there's been tons of fab closures in the states, so there's been even fewer places. And so, you know, you talk about uh, into the future. I think that that. When when you are in a super special specialized role like that, and in a in a fast moving thing like like chip design, where there's going to be changes in technology as well, it's like that that's super risky. Um, not to mention, I wanted to get back into electronics proper anyway. So, right. um, I don't know. I think I think that there's just always value in kind of dipping a toe in different in different puddles, and and eventually you might find one that is the next is the next thing you jump to. Right. Right. Well, so as as uh, the lead of contextual electronics, you are helping a lot of engineers develop what for them are new skills. Uh, mm. Typically, I'm guessing you're not getting uh, people that have 10 years of embedded experience. You're getting people that either have a little bit of electronics background or maybe no electronics background at all. Right. Yeah, it's, uh, it's uh, a large majority of people that are coming to the software world that want to get either back into or into hardware. That's a lot of what they're doing. And, and so have you made any discoveries about w- what you have to do or what's important in helping these people uh, acquire new skills? Uh, well, at least with hardware, it's kind of, uh, you know, especially like people that are coming from the software world, it's like, well, no, you don't get to instantly repile, recompile, but that's okay. <laughs> um, you do in simulations. Kind of, yeah, well, there's simulations, but then also just saying that, yeah, we're doing low cost stuff where it's okay to make mistakes and um and we'll be able to fix it. It's just you won't be able to recompile it. You'll, you know, bodge wires and uh, fixing stuff after the fact. And just really the importance of checking your work before you send it out kind of thing. Right. And and I always am fascinated by the fact that in various fields of engineering this is sort of different. You know, I guess uh software engineering you can keep re- recompiling on almost a continuous basis. Mhm. Software engineer, or sorry, electrical engineering. If you're doing uh, embedded type work, you can spin a board, and in a matter of days or weeks, you can have something back. 
if I'm designing a machine and getting it built, then it may be a matter of months before I see that done. If Adam's building a road, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah he, I don't get, he, he, he's six years one. minimum. <laughs> it's, like, yeah, it's, six, it's six years and he gets one shot at it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, no, it's true. Yeah. You, you can fix things in the field, but <laughs> you don't <laughs> but, re-spin yeah, the I, road. You don't want to. Um, well, you, you don't if you want to keep your job. Mm-hmm. Right, and if you're if you're a nuclear engineer, you may have to wait forty years for them to for right. them to actually int- implement your new design. Right, or how about uh, how about those guys that uh, do like the the Pluto missions with the flyby camera thing? Oh yeah, like that just like nine years to get there. Nine uh, years, like you forgot you had like a, uh, yeah, a logic low error or something. You know, <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> yeah. I heard recently that the uh, that the the James Webb telescope won't be won't be system tested. Ooh, I didn't hear like that. it's just going to be simulated together, but it's all being assembled because it's not actually. I think that's the one where it's not being assembled before it's in, in space. It's huh. like it's giving me shivers, <laughs> you know. That that just seems to be asking for trouble. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so is this a cost issue, or is there some physical problem? In no, I think it's yeah. They can't find a vacuum chamber big enough. I think. Wow. Yeah. The only space big enough to build it is space itself. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so uh, what was the original question, though? So it was about... Uh, well, what, 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 are you finding any important factors in helping people learn new skills? Oh, like the, the crossover side of things? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think... I think that... At least, yeah, so at least on the electronic side of things, it's kind of prompting people that mistakes are going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think a lot of that comes from the school systems as well, because we've been, you know, even, okay, so like, Jeff, your mechatronics class, right? People are going to make mistakes, but there's still, uh, there's still time restrictions and there's, you know, there still needs to be, you still need to get to a certain output by a certain time, right? And it's, for real learning, though, you should be able to try things multiple times and, you know, hopefully there's guidance so that it keeps getting better each time, but, um, that doesn't right. necessarily fit the the grading model of schools um, because you don't – yeah, it doesn't doesn't really work like that. <laughs> yeah, so, it sounds a lot like owning a home. <laughs> like it's just in one big yeah. environment I can try new stuff out in. Like if you look at the first room I painted versus uh, the fourth room. <laughs> that's right. There's a, yeah. there's a big difference in my skill set. Yeah, yeah. Right. right. Yeah. Well, and, and that's sometimes a problem. I have students that are so – set on not making a mistake. You know, yeah. every course is, I don't want to make an error. I don't want to get anything less than an A. Uh, anything that would give me a 95 instead of an, you know, a 98, I don't want to do. And you can't do that. You're When you're building this type of project, uh, and we give them basically the first half of the semester is, is a series of labs trying to get them used to uh, integrating mechanical and uh, devices with electronic controllers, uh, to to understand the differentiation between when you apply software, you know, when you make a software solution, when you make an electronic solution, when you make a mechanical solution. So they have about seven weeks to do that and seven or eight weeks at the back end to build this device. And there just isn't enough time to design it, order parts, you know, yeah. put it together, debug it, test it. And so it's always- And then do a, do a couple of revisions of that then, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> they, they, they basically, they're all scrambling the last week and a half trying to get their thing to work at all. You know, yep. they, they have grand plans at the beginning of the semester about what their thing is going to do. And by the end, they're just scrambling trying to make it work. But almost always, all the teams have something that at least, at least works partially. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, but that's, that's the beauty of it. I mean, that's what I want them to get is I want them to have tried it at least once. 
Yeah. Right, but from a grading perspective, that's that's ultimately like it's it's the fact that because of how grading systems are, that that ultimately restricts people, I think. And um and that you know, it was for me too. Like I was always afraid to try stuff, always afraid to break stuff, and it's like, you know, I think that if you realize that a lot of electronics these days are low cost, uh that even if you blow up a couple chips, it's not a big deal. Right. Um you know, that's not going to work in every field, of course, but um that starts to lower the barrier of people trying stuff. Right. Um, I had uh, Akiba on the the Amp Hour a couple weeks ago, mm-hmm. and we were talking about we were talking about you know learning and stuff like that. And he he likens engineering and learning to dancing and how and I was kind of talking about jazz. And it's mm-hmm. like at the beginning you start and you just try and copy what other people are doing, right. but then eventually you start to you start to play on different themes, you start to see patterns, you start to break out of the rules that you've learned. Right. And yes, you need to learn those things, but I think the problem is that we stop in the education system, we say uh, we grade based on how well you perfectly replicate those those first songs, so yeah. using jazz. And and really it should be about getting through to the point where you've been, become proficient and, and checking that you're proficient. And then it should start to be, can you start to modify in those themes? Can you, do you really understand the concepts behind it when you're presented with a challenge that matches that pattern? Can you then modify and adapt it to this new situation that you're in? And right. um, that's hard to teach. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's hard to do as an engineer or as right. someone doing something. So, but, but the problem is of course that you can, if you ask somebody to play scales, mm-hmm. you can you can grade them fairly accurately on that, and that's what Correct. we do in education, that's, right? That is very. But true. when yep. when somebody's playing true uh, improvisational jazz, who's to say whether it's good or not? You know, there, there will be somebody who is really uh, pushing the boundary, who some yep. people find wonderful, and other people find uh, just creating noise. Right. Exactly. No. Yeah. You're totally right. It's the 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 measurement. Is is definitely one of the toughest parts, and so you you have your jazz students put an album out and send it on iTunes, and then whoever gets the most sales <laughs> gets an A, next year right. gets a B, and so on down the line. <laughs> well, no, and that actually brings another point: is that competition is another piece that becomes really tough as well, right? So, like like Jeff was mentioning, you know, I don't want to get a ninety eight. Why is that person saying that? It's because they're eventually competing to get into a grad program or something like that, or or to get a job yeah, based that on a GPA, GPA cut off. Yeah, everybody right. right, and it's like that is not right. Uh, I mean, I know that it, I know why it exists, but it's stupid because if three people understand it to a certain level of proficiency, you shouldn't be grading them on, on who perfectly replicated something better. You should be doing it based on who can not only regurgitate information, but synthesize a new thing. So present them with a new challenge and then see how they actually respond to it. But again, it becomes a grading thing. You know, how do you, how do you really evaluate that kind of stuff? And mm-hmm. so in all this stuff, it's become my solution has been don't grade people. And all of the way, the only way you prove that you know something is by showing what you've built. And mm-hmm. that's the best I've come up with. And if you guys got anything better, I would love to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> Especially if Adam has a way that uh, this works for Rose. I don't think it does, uh, unfortunately. <laughs> no, he, he yeah. has to build a Hot Wheels track proving his concept right. out. <laughs> And if the you know the semi truck makes it over the leap, he's fine. <laughs> right, we'll build it. <laughs> Ring of fire. <laughs> well, you know that, that. You know, I would say that one of the I'm going to call it an advantage of the civil engineering industry is, you know, I think there's a lot of this move towards apprenticeship, 
which has been very firmly uh, entrenched in civil engineering for many years related to uh, professional engineering licenses. That's true. Yeah. You get your, uh, you get your bachelor's degree. You got a learner's permit uh, almost literally for yeah, four right. years. And then <laughs> y- you have a safety net. We got to take the test first though, too. You got to, you got to get your, your license by the yeah, yeah. stupid FEs test. Yeah. You got to take the FE <laughs> test and, and then you got to take another test uh, a couple years later, but you've got four years that you're not being graded. You just have to improve and you've got somebody there who's already gone through it. There is a safety net to make sure you don't screw up too bad. Right. And, uh, yep. to, to teach you more than anything. I never thought about the, the, the PE stuff as apprenticeship, but that is really, that's a great point. Yeah. Or, um, or residency for doctors. I mean, same sort of concept. Yeah. 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 Yep. Right. Because, you know, and it's, it's formalized as well with, uh, you need to be under a certified PE, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Um, there's exceptions for, you know, yeah, no, the eight years. That. Or oh no, that's that's if you don't have the degree, you can go for eight years or something like that, right? Uh, yeah, and if you work in an industry that doesn't have very many PEs, there's um, you know oh. ways you can document the level of experience in certain states. But you know, in civil, which is the biggest PE field, yep, um, yep, yep. you got to work for a PE for well two to four years, depending on education. Yeah, um, but and you know that could also be driving that trend you talked about with like the consolidation, the only only having the consolidation mm-hmm. where it would make sense that you have the centralization of of expertise and that there's no room for, for the little guys. Yeah. I mean, because it's a system that, that kind of system is built on, on that, uh, that propagation of, of, of expertise. Yeah. You know, and I, I think another part of it is, um, the, where the money comes from, you know, yeah, uh, the marketplace question. Yeah. Right. The, the market for civil engineering works is government. It, yep. Yes, there's exceptions, but it's it's primarily government. At least transportation, <laughs> it's entirely government for the most. Well, very nearly entirely government. Right. Um, you know, we're not hiring somebody just because. You know, we're hiring somebody who's better than we are, and we're big enough that you know, chances are one mom and pop shop, you know, two three people, is probably just not going to have enough people there to have the expertise to outperform internal. Yeah, becomes a numbers game at that point. Yeah, so you got to have couple hundred engineers to compete against the the well actually usually i think it's it's probably close to a thousand internal engineers um somebody's got the expertise so it, you dope so <laughs> <laughs> well yeah, usually what um, do we hire these guys for <laughs> <laughs> um so it, it is a little different marketplace than um selling the next iPhone widget to swipe credit yeah. cards or whatever it may be, you know, right, or, right. Um, you know, we're telling to the consumer. Yeah, definitely. So I wanted to ask you, Chris, in, in contextual electronics, uh, again, you're dealing with people that are trying to get started in the, in a new area, a new skill. Mm-hmm. What is it that takes to, have you found something that takes to get them a foothold that, that if you can just get them over this little hurdle, they seem to get the idea and they get going. Um, I mean, I think a lot of the basic skills for sure. So like understanding, I mean, soldering, KiCad, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. That's one thing. Uh, but really, I'd say it's the, um, how do I say that? The conceptual models, right? Mm-hmm. So starting to understand, starting to internalize current voltage, that kind of stuff, resistance, what it actually means creating these mental models so that you see how current flows in a circuit. Mm-hmm. That is a tough one to learn, but once you start to kind of see the matrix, then right. all becomes easier. 
a little bit easier. <laughs> so the uh, so the two things that I always when I'm especially when I'm teaching mechatronics, one is I try to put an emphasis on the you know the lingo, the terms, and so yeah, yeah, what to Google for, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because if you don't know what to Google for, you you have the idea, but you just can't find the right word, and, and yeah. until you find the right word, that that sets everything okay. And and so there's there's the lingo, you know, the right words, and the other thing is, I think, which goes to what you're talking about, is the right analogy. That is, people come from other fields, especially if they're coming from a technical field, whether it be software programming or, you know, something else. Mm-hmm. There's something, usually there's something in their field that's somewhat similar, but it's just a matter of finding the right analogy. Um, I and, and so like in, in this mechatronics course, I found that I have some mechanical engineers that respond really well to my description of diodes as one-way valves. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And, they, and they come to me afterwards and they go, I never knew what a diode – I mean, I've been to classes. I'd ha- I had studied diodes, but I, I never understood what it was. The, now, I, now I know. Right. And, and so it wasn't that I did anything magical. I just provided the right analogy that sort of gave them an understanding of how to transfer their existing knowledge into this new domain. Right, and that's and that's when they start to internalize it because they can also, you know, they're probably very visual learners. And I, I know a lot of mechanical guys that I know yes, are we tend can, to be that way. visual, hands-on, that kind yeah. of thing. And and so having that visual representation of it, yeah, that's great. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, well, it, it makes me wonder if there aren't uh, an increasing need of if if this is truly happening, if we if we need to become more interdisciplinary, that there isn't a need for more sort of cross-disciplinary translators, you know, someone to explain, uh. <laughs> here's what you have mechanical, and this is what it means. Excuse me, do, do you speak biomechanical? No, I don't. <laughs> Sorry, sir, it's not on the approved list of analogies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think ultimately in any kind of uh, scenario like this, it's it's going to become how – you know, we've all had those eureka moments, right? And those are not, those are unique to us. They're not like, it's not like I can be like, Carmen, you had the same unique, you know, same eureka moment as I did. It's like, no, well, we have had different life experiences. We understand things differently. We, you know, we've, we've had different uh, backgrounds on what classes we've taken, that kind of stuff. So there's never going to be a standardized way to do it. I think that's the first thing we have to accept. Mm -hmm. But I think you're definitely on the mark with presenting enough different, uh, presenting enough analogies and different ways of thinking about it so that we can kind of help these students uh, make it click. And and that's what it ultimately comes down to is that you have to accept, I feel, feel like a lot of uh, university programs as well. It's like I, I show up at class and I say, pour the knowledge into my head. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that my school at least didn't do very well uh, or, or I didn't capture very well is that that never happens um, <laughs> in any scenario at any school? It doesn't matter if you go to the best school in the world. It's still you. You know, it's still you are the one. You are responsible for your own comprehension, and you have to go fit your own mental models. And um, right, and that's something that we've been doing with contextual electronics too. It's like, but it's a little bit more upfront where it's like, well, we're not even going to give you. You know, we'll show you where to find the stuff. But for some of these yeah. topics, it's like, yeah, you got to go research this yourself and <laughs> and make it click. You know, yeah. Well, and and one of the downsides is I think that it's it's common that people feel like because they see the world in a slightly different way, or they don't immediately grasp the textbook way of thinking, that they're made to feel as though 
they are either inferior or their 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 models or are less valuable than those that are in the textbook. What we should do is we should introduce them to the both some of the weenies that uh, write the textbooks and then the jokers that actually print the textbooks, and <laughs> no one will ever feel inferior to textbooks ever again. Right? <laughs> Seriously, I, I, I yeah those. But, I, but I when you're when you're 18 years old <laughs> and showing up in the classroom, it's it's a little tough to make right. that decision. Yeah. No, definitely. So, in your program, one of the first mm-hmm. things you had was the uh, was the Blinky LED. Yeah, getting to Blinky. That's right. Getting to Blinky. And if you're if you're doing software design, it's it's usually, you know, printing hello world. Right. Or if you're doing embedded design, it's usually you know, it's like an Arduino, right? The first thing yeah. you do is you make the LED blink. Right. It's a much shorter process. But okay, this so software and embedded seem to have something. I can't think of what's the equivalent mechanical or or uh I'd say civil. Cutting your first pocket on a mill. Okay. Um civil building a go kart. <laughs> Spaghetti bridges for uh, civil. <laughs> yeah, but, but you know, like a toothpick, toothpick bridge, or something. I mean, like, I, not, not that you do that in class, but I'm saying, like, just under like a practical application of a core concept, sure, right. whatever that would be for chemical engineering. It's starting a meth empire, obviously. Of uh, course, right, right. <laughs> Brewing beer, uh. exactly, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, um, yeah, having that kind of that, just that dopamine squirt you know the that's what it ultimately comes down to i changed a thing i i did this i i did this myself and i think that you know like with an arduino that's really fast because you're really just even almost running a a predefined sketch but it's it's powerful to change your environment like that yeah it's that's a big deal so if you have to create the dopamine as a chemical engineer but you get the dopamine squirt from creating the dopamine does it still count you actually squirt it onto something (laughs) well no i mean like you finally synthesize your dopamine but you get a shot of dopamine from creating dopamine so is is that still count it's it's dopamine all the way down exactly yeah yeah turtles all the way down (laughs) that's right yeah i don't know yeah so do you have any thoughts chris on if you have gone out and learned these interdisciplinary skills and certainly you were a person who went out and said, I have a certain set of skills and, and I want to expand these skills and they may not apply to the particular employer or organization that I'm with right now. Mm-hmm. Is there, do you think that there is commercial value in expanding your skills? I mean, yes, we can all go out and, and, and increase our ability to, uh, to develop something with that has a microcontroller, but does that make us any more employable? Does that is that going to increase our salary or or make organizations want us more, or they just want somebody who's going to sit there in the in the cube and you know go through and check the QA documents uh, seventeen an hour and not to make too much of a, a mess? Uh, probably depends on where you're looking to get a job and yeah, you right. Could, I don't want to I don't want to work wherever that QA document yeah. is. But uh. I, I remember. <laughs> Older episodes of the Amp Hour, uh, I think it was right after Jeff Kaiser got his job at Valve. You guys were talking about the T structure to hiring, was it? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mile wide and a yeah. well, yeah, like a foot wide and a mile deep type of thing. Yeah, but then they were, they were everything else for, is super narrow. Yeah, candidates super. that had, yeah, one narrow field of focus you were an expert in, but then you could be, a, you know, dabble in many other things and that made you more valuable. Yeah, I think so. In terms of okay, so let's talk. Let's talk about the soul crushing job first. Like, if you work somewhere that's going to punish you for getting something done faster or outside the norm, even though it's done, Mm -hmm. you're 
you probably screwed anyways. Let's be honest, right? Like, if <laughs> and like, so if you if you are working on a thing and you and you you figure out a method, so you bring in a microcontroller and a little board, and you figure out how to automate even just a click, right? So say you figure out how to automate a mouse click, and mm-hmm. you you do that kind of thing, and and you're like, and you're super proud of yourself, and then your boss comes to you and says, "You're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to do that the way we told you to do that." Mm-hmm. If you're at that company. You're screwed either way. It doesn't matter how you're, you're never going to get ahead by learning a different skill at that company. Yeah. However, uh, I think that if you went to another company and you interviewed and you said, well, you know, I really wanted to uh, automate some tasks so I could move to a higher function thing. And I wanted to, you know, save the company money and time and, and make the employees happier. And they're like, heck yeah. How can we hire you? Like right. that's where that tangible benefit's going to come in. But again, if you're at that soul crushing job in the first place, you, you <laughs> That's on you, you know, that, that's what it comes down to. So, yeah, I do think there's value, and I don't think it's just an escaping a shitty job. Um, it's just that um, it's going it, to, like anything, it depends, you know. It's like, I think that ultimately, I think that the best engineers are working on stuff on their own because they enjoy what they're doing, mm-hmm. and then that ends up trickling into their job. Um, right. So, like, my friend Marty, the one who I bought the 3D printer from. Sure. Br- br- literally a brilliant engineer. And he started doing 3D printers because he was interested in it. And then he started built, building fixtures for testing on boards at, on his desk and stuff like that out of 3D printed material. And it's like, that's a part of his life that he had no, he had no reason to bring that into the workplace. And right. yet it let him get his job done better because of a hobby he was doing on the side. It's not always going to work out like that, but right. you know, he was doing the 3D printing thing anyways. So why not? And then... And then you think about it like that kind of stuff, or like like in my case, I was using Oshpark all the time, anyways, mm-hmm. for for home boards. And then I I could either go and get a full spin of a circuit board at work for hundreds of dollars, or I could spend five dollars because I needed a square inch of PCB. And yeah, it looked a little different, and yeah, it was uh, you know it was a small little circuit, but who cares? You know what I mean? Like that's uh that's another thing where it's I was doing right. stuff at home, and it just happened to cross over. Right. So that's what I ultimately think about where it's you're doing stuff for yourself either way and you may find a benefit for it, but that's not the reason to do it in the first place. You do it right. because you're interested, you want to try stuff out and you're interested in being a better human being. In the process, you may become a more marketable human being as well. Right. Because like I think about people that are like homebrewers, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe, so maybe a homebrewer uh, is, maybe a mechanical engineer is a homebrewer, whatever. I know and, a civil engineer uh, who's a homebrewer. Okay, sure. Yeah, there might be one of those. Oh, in the, in, is there's one in the room right now? Are we yeah, Adam, yes, about? yes. Okay. <laughs> well, let's stick with mechanical because Adam already says that his stuff's pretty pretty, uh, pretty focused. Yeah. Right. Uh, but then, like, you think about they're learning about uh, PID loops around uh, around the heater control, that kind of thing. Like, that, sure, that, that could have use or just even having electronics control and being able to pull that in or, or I, I don't know. There's just, there's tons of, it's not. There's no reason to do it for commercial gain at the beginning, but it might work out like that in the end. Right. Well, let, let me ask uh, one final question here before we wrap things up. Um, so if you're wanting to become a better brewer, you're wanting to learn about embedded electronics, uh, what do you think is the importance of having a group to learn with? I mean, versus trying to do it all on your own? Uh, well... That's a tough question. Um, I, th- I think it's it's if you have it, 
it is the best thing in the world. If I mean, as long as you stay out of the politics of big groups and stuff like that, mm-hmm. yeah, it's great because you're going to find people to talk to, people to ask questions to, people to you know self to help you motivate each other, you know, work towards a common goal, that kind of stuff. That's all. You know, that's the same thing as the meetups. It's good. It's good down home human connection. Right. Um, <laughs> however, uh, I, I am currently in a basement in Cleveland, Ohio. Well, right. outside in the outskirts where there's very few people that live around me and <laughs> uh, very even fewer of them are interested in what I do and yeah. even fewer than that know what I do um, right. by design. And uh, so that's the reality of it. I mean, I remember I was talking to a guy who was interested in contextual electronics. He's like, well, is there any problem? I'm like, I live in like uh, the northern part of Sweden, a pretty remote area. I'm like, "Uh, I guess not. (laughs) Shipping might be a little more expensive. But um, and it's it's like you can I I think it's still you can still do it. It's and you can find it online. I think I think it's still important. Um, You don't need to, though, either. It's just that I think it's going to be a little bit more motivating for some people. Yeah. Well, just accountability. And I look at the uh, the college students that I uh, teach, and I think there's so much of this stuff that, yes, 20, 30 years ago, you had to go to the university to find the information. But so much of this is online now. Mm-hmm. So much of this is available. Uh, there's so many groups, you know. Uh, forums and groups that you can go with, uh, find people that are experts in this area that really do you need to come to the university in order to learn this stuff? And, and in many cases, it's no. I mean, sure, there are some cases where there are specialized experts or equipment that you have to go to. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it's really important, the uh, the social experience of going together with others of, of similar interest, of similar mind, of approximately similar age, usually, uh, to you know share in this experience. There's something valuable in that uh, being part of a group, yeah, yeah, I think it's uh, it's gonna it's gonna get you through the hard times for sure. Yeah, because even if you're just even if I'm here in Cleveland and Jeff is there in Indiana, and you're still in Indiana, right? I am still in Indiana, right? Yeah. <laughs> and we're I mean, and if we're just ch- chatting on Skype and drinking a beer and just kind of bitching about you know our latest projects, like there is just there's value in just kind of getting that stuff out there, and then it's like, oh, well, Jeff, did you? you could talk to this one person I know and, you know, like it's just like those small little, those little things that it's like, if you're just sitting in a, in a corner by yourself and never talking to anyone, even chat or anything else, it's like, mm-hmm. you're just gonna be banging your head against the wall and, um, and just kind of giving a different scenario and breaking out of the norms will help you get through your projects basically. Right. Right. Well, so speaking of getting through the hard times, you've, uh, you've, uh, been involved in contextual electronics. You've been, uh, working with the, the parts IO site. Uh, what's next for Chris Gamble? Ooh, uh, man, I don't know. Uh, well, so parts IO is one site. We actually have another site called supply effects and, uh, I've been helping with that as a little, a little bit as well. Okay. It's kind of meant to be a connection platform. So kind of, um, really for connecting like vendors and, uh, vendors and consultants and contractors and basically mm-hmm. a way to, find new business, but also interact with people. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's a, uh, it's a cool new platform. People can sign up if they need an invite code. I can send one their way for sure. Um, so just give me a ping, Twitter <laughs> or email. Okay. We can, we can put the, uh, the appropriate, uh, Twitter handle in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, other than that though, I mean, contextual electronics, hoping to keep growing the pro- program and, uh, 
we've been doing embedded stuff. We have, so we have basically like the, the role with it is, is getting there. It's probably a couple more months till it's finished. That's the, uh, the telepresence robot. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, onto the next project. That's kind of the idea is just project to project to project to project. And each way, each, each time using that as a learning opportunity. Right. So the fact that we're building a robot is trivial. It's, mm-hmm. you could do that in uh, evening. I've done that with a kit, you know, it's, it's not hard, but we're d- building each board and talking about, you know, so like the motor controller and the very specific pieces of that and the embedded and specific pieces of that. So just finding, finding the next project that's going to give a range of new challenges for us. And that's kind of the focus. Right. Right. And uh, as you stand back, what are you about two years into contextual electronics? This, yeah, just started the third year on the 20th. So nine, nine days from now. So as you look back, is this, is this what you thought it would be? Is the journey what you expected? Not at all. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I, I expected to be a billionaire by now. Didn't you know? I mean, <laughs> well, no, I, um, no, I mean, it's been, um, it's been crazy. It's been crazy, but it's been good. It's been good. Fantastic. How about, uh, come on, we got to do a little self-introspection here. I know we're a little over on time, but uh, 100 episodes of the Engineering Commons, what's what's in the future? Same, become billionaires. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, I hear there's a lot of money in podcasting. There is, yeah. We're, we're, we're doing all right now. You know, we got, we got I think, negative a couple hundred bucks on microphones. <laughs> <laughs> so any day now, we'll be raking it in. <laughs> Yeah, we, we we talked a couple of episodes back. Uh, I think it was episode ninety seven, next hundred, where you know where the podcast might go. And uh, I missed that one. Oh. The, the, the you know the main thing was just we want to continue talking with working engineers. Uh, we yeah. it, it's not too hard to find uh, students who want to talk about you know engineering or professors that want to talk about their view of engineering, but it's rel- relatively hard to get working day to day engineers to talk about their career. And the, and the problem is they all think that their life is boring, right? Their career is boring because they're so, you know, narrowly focused on, on whatever their expertise is, but uh, without, well, almost without uh, exception, they have interesting backgrounds. You know, there are some great stories that they have to tell. And, uh, and I just, right. I, I'm trying to find ways to encourage more of them to come on and, and uh, share their tales with us. Where should I send people? Is there an email address that is a good one to send people to? Like for, uh, is it like guests at theengineeringcommons.com? The best thing is to go to theengineeringcommons.com. And on the okay. front page, we have a contact page. And mm-hmm. from there, you can send an email to either any of the four of us uh, or all of us, all four of us at the same time, depending on, on who you want to contact. Uh, and uh, sometimes we get ideas for new shows and sometimes we get some ideas for guests and, and, <laughs> And sometimes you get great offers on pills that do fancy things. <laughs> sometimes we get those too, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's good, you know. A lot yeah, of different. Right. And yeah. and so uh from your end, did you uh when you uh said, Hey, I want to do a podcast about engineering that was a little more philosophical, did you ever think we'd get to a hundred episodes? Ah, uh, you know, I I don't try and look at the future anymore, <laughs> Jeff. Yeah. Looking on couple couple weeks out, yeah. so yeah, no, uh, but it's it's really it's really great. I'm really glad that it's it's kept going and gone so strong. It's it's awesome. Well, I'm, it's, I'm uh, so I'm so pleased you had the idea and that uh, you invited me to get involved. I've I've enjoyed it. Yeah, I'm thankful you, know, you think, quit to make room for me. Yep. <laughs> hey, hey, nice. 
I think, um, you know, so we were talking a lot about students as well and kind of like going into the future. And, you know, one thing, one challenge that I see for students of all types is just kind of knowing what's out there. And I think that's something that you guys do really well. I think that's something we're trying to do on Amp Hour. That's what, you know, Carl and Corey at, uh, at Spark App and Alicia and Chris at Embedded, like just kind of getting these stories out there because so at the, the Hackaday thing that I helped run the super conference, mm-hmm. I was on stage with Grant uh, Imahara, the, the robot guy from Mythbusters. Right. And we were interviewing him. It was great. And after the fact, I was talking to someone, I was like, if you would have told me when I was 10 that I could have been, instead of doctor or lawyer, which I thought were my choices, instead I could be robot builder for Star Wars movies, mm-hmm. like if that's a legit career, right? like no one, who would have thought of that? You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> and, and you think about 10 years in the future, even like none of those jobs exist yet. And so just kind of keep getting these stories out there. It's just really important because, and trying to get younger people listening as well, because yeah, it's a confusing time. You said 18 year olds, you know, like that's just, who the hell knows what they, like, I got so lucky. I, I figured out what I wanted to do. Like mm-hmm. it's, but it was chance, you know, it was just chance right. that I was nerdy and this is nerdy enough for me. So. Right. Right. Well, I, and I worry about the, you know, the young people that get in, buy into the, you know, uh, go, you, you're good in math, you're good in science, go be an engineer. Right. And, uh, they may be good in math and they may be good at science. They may hate engineering, mm-hmm. uh, because engineering is a lot about project management, a lot about working with people, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of this interdisciplinary stuff. On the other hand, they may, somebody who's not great at math and science may be really enjoy the engineering field. And so, right. Exactly. Uh, right. I, I agree with you, Chris, in that, I want very much to get the stories of the engineers out there so people see that there are many, many paths to success uh, through engineering. And it's not always the the typical, stereotypical, you know, came out of college, signed up with a big company, had a great engineering career, and always was always rosy thereafter. Right. Exactly. Especially these days. <laughs> Especially these days. Well, cool, guys. <laughs> to another hundred uh, engineering Commons episodes. No, I've I've finished my whiskey, but I'll I'll raise the empty glass. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> raise, raise the glasses here. See if I get the. There we go. All right. Well, I'll, I'll change Chris. the table. Yep. Right. So, Chris, thank you so much for coming back on and and uh, joining us in this hundredth episode. My pleasure. Talk to you guys soon. All right. All right. Thanks, Chris. Take it easy. Yeah. Thanks, Chris. All right. That was good. The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our musical introduction is by John Trimble and our concluding theme by Paul Stevenson. <laughs>